Wow. Whoever thought you're allowed to move your hips in church? Wasn't that good? Why don't we show appreciation to the worship team? Thanks so much. As Becky said right at the beginning, we're kicking off this brand new identity campaign. It's my pleasure to be able to do that. And we are just going to take this next few weeks, maybe even go into October with some of this, because I believe as we come into September, it's really like the beginning of the year for a lot of us. I know New Year happens in January, but September, everyone seems to get back to the grind, get back to school, get back to work after July and August, where hopefully this year you manage to take a little bit of a break and get away for a few weeks. And what I want to do in September, and we want to make this a staple of LCF, is that every September we just reorient ourselves around some key foundational fundamental truths. And to do that, I want to start by looking at the concept of identity. So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to be reading uh, a couple of verses. There's a bit of a chunk of scripture, but it is so important, I believe. And it was just recently, I was rereading these scriptures. It's stuff I've read for years and years. And I just felt such an excitement in my spirit. And oftentimes, as I've said to you before, I feel that God speaks to me primarily through scripture. And it was as I was reading these verses, I felt like I was reading it afresh for the first time. And it's from Ephesians chapter one. It's the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Ephesus. And as I was reading it, I could just sense and feel some of the Apostle Paul's excitement as he's penning this. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to tell this church, these new believers in Christ, who they are, who they were, and then who they are. So I'm going to start in verse three and I'm going to read to verse 11. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I love the language that is used here. If you've got another Bible translation, that's fine. The essence of what is being said is exactly the same. But he says this, talking to the church. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And listen to this church. It gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us. Some translation says that he is lavished upon us who belong to his dear son, Jesus. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and he forgave our sins. He has showered us with kindness along with all wisdom and with understanding. God has now revealed to us, listen to this, his mysterious plan regarding Christ. I love that, the mysterious plan. Oh, what is that? And he tells us straight away. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ everything in heaven and on earth. And furthermore, because we're united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. That is really important. If you believe in underlining your Bible or taking notes, write that down. We have received an inheritance from God. And church, what I want to tell you, first things first this morning, foundation of fundamental truth for those who believe in Jesus is when we come to Jesus, we don't just join a society. We don't just join a club. We don't just get a membership card or something we do once a week. We join a family. 
And really good news, church, if you don't know Jesus and maybe you're just feeling him out a little bit and trying to figure out what this whole church thing is about, when Jesus chose us, we read there, it isn't an exclusive thing for a few people. He chose all of us and then the responsibility of choosing him lies with us. We are adopted into his family. Look at this language in verse 5. Adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus. This is what he wanted to do because it gave him great pleasure. And as I said, I was reading this. I've read this time and time again, but I just got so excited as the Apostle Paul was communicating to me through the scripture. God loves me and he chose me. And I have, uh, in everything I do and what I do going into my days, I have the ability to give God great pleasure. And so then I got stuck on what it means to be family. What does it mean to be family? Of course, it means love and devotion if you belong to a good family. It means responsibility. It means loyalty. But I think it also means primarily a shared identity. When you come into a family, whether you're adopted, you're married into it or born into it, you share the identity of your parents and your wider family. And Jesus uses all sorts of... um, language through the Bible for the Gospels and then the Apostle Paul and the the other apostles writing in the New Testament about what it means to be family. We're called sons and daughters. We're called heirs. We're called a royal priesthood. We're adopted into his family. But as I was reading these verses, there was one verse that I got taken back to where Jesus refers to his church, his family as something else. And it was the one word in reading this scripture in Ephesians 1 that brought me to this other word. We are united with Christ. Well, that doesn't really sound like a son and daughter relationship. That sounds like a spouse relationship. What does it mean to be united with Christ? And I was taken to this word of bride. You will know if you've read the Bible that we are often referred to as the bride of Christ. Now, I'm not going to lie. As a man, it's a little bit weird to be referred to as a bride. And I think it takes some getting used to and sitting with and ruminating over of what does it mean to be a bride? You see, as a married man, it's a lot easier for me to understand it because I have got married and I had my bride. You'll see here a picture of mine and Becky's wedding. I'm a little bit slimmer there. Feels really good to get clapped. I didn't do anything. I just turned up and said I do. But anyway, yep. (laughs) Becky was my, my bride. And what did it mean to get married, to be a husband and to be a bride? Well, I got really shocked actually in becoming a husband because everything seemed to change overnight. You see, even as a fiancé, my priorities were a little bit different as a husband. Where before, all my money went on hoodies and skinny jeans and haircuts. Now all my money was tied up in things called mortgages and insurances. And I remember after getting married, literally the first thing my brother said to me, who's a solicitor, my dad's also a solicitor, I escaped the family business and became a pastor. He says, look, you need to come down to Birmingham and you need to sort out your will and you need to sort out your life insurances, you need to sort out your home insurances. And I don't even know what insurance is, okay? The only insurance I know is my phone insurance, which I had to sort of bat the phone person away. I've never heard of insurances. But what I'm trying to say is that being a bride and being a husband is far more than just a title. There's a responsibility to it. And there's also a blessing to it. You see, when Jesus calls us the bride of Christ, it's not just about attraction and it's not just about sexuality. So gentlemen, don't worry about the weirdness of trying to figure out what it means to be a bride. You see, what I think the Bible is trying to communicate to us in calling us a bride is about covenant. It's about a deep-seated covenant, a deep-seated love and a deep-seated relationship. 
After getting back off my honeymoon, a few weeks after this wedding day, I rushed down to Birmingham with Becky, got in my dad's office and started drawing up a will uh, and, and all these life insurance policies and signing all these different documents. And as I was thinking about this, reading Ephesians 1 and thinking about my time of becoming a husband and Becky's time becoming a bride, I just got this sense that this is exactly what Jesus did. You see, a lot more change for Becky actually becoming a bride than change for me because Becky's whole identity changed. I was still Mike Nichols the day after my wedding, but Becky Heron was now Becky Nichols. Rebecca Heron became Rebecca Nichols. And it struck me that anyone from school who knew Becky wanted to give, give her a little bit of a stalking on Facebook or Instagram, they wouldn't be able to find her now because her identity changed just in the flourish of a pen. She became Rebecca Nichols. Bible tells us 2 Corinthians 5.17, when you come to Christ, you're a new creation. There's a new identity. And as I was thinking about brides signing all these different things, as I said, life insurance policies, mortgages, uh, all these different insurances, home insurances, uh, uh, job insurances, all the different insurances I was there, I just got this picture of Jesus in his quiet time with God. We see in the Gospels, Jesus goes away to spend time with the Father in isolation, that Jesus was actually signing documents in the heavenlies as well. Now, before you write me out as a heretic, let me explain. You see, when I was writing my will, it's not a pleasant thing to do, especially when you're 24, okay? You're thinking about what could happen if anything happened to you and where everything goes. We get left what's called a legacy. And I didn't understand this because a legacy to me is something you leave behind like a memory. So Winston Churchill's legacy was about World War II, okay? A good legacy. We also have bad legacies like Hitler. Hitler's legacy in World War II was completely different. But a legacy legally is far more than just a memory or a myth or an imagination. It actually has some ramification to it. You see, my legacy is my house insurance. It is, it is all the things I own, my books, my most sacred thing in the world are my books. Roy Turner knows that. We have a shared love of theological books. But everything I own, if anything ever happens to me, goes directly to Becky and the kids, as long as they behave. No, seriously, if anything ever happens to me, it all goes to the kids. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing. And as I was thinking again about legacies, about Jesus, about my legacy, about Jesus' legacy, I was scanning all four. And amazingly, God can speak to you through all four as well. It's like the TV on demand. And it was as I was scanning through this, I came across this TV series. Absolutely brilliant. Has anyone ever heard of Air Hunters? All right, it looks really, really boring. Tell you what, it's better than a James Bond film. It has you on the edge of your seat. And what it does, it follows probate researchers, different companies. And what their job is to do is when somebody passed away and left a legacy and a state, sometimes people with millions in their bank account and there's no uh, you know, visible spouse or children or family connections, these probate researchers will go and find all the family trees and try and hunt down, for a fee of course, the person who the legacy belonged to before the state swallowed it up. And oftentimes there'd be a knock at the door and this unsuspecting couple would open the door and they'd be greeted by this probate researcher who would say, do you know so-and-so? And more often than not, they wouldn't know. Well, I want to tell you, sir and madam, that actually this person is a third cousin, four times removed, somewhere in your family tree, and they've left a legacy of tens of thousands of pounds. And you are the beneficiary of that. And they'd be shocked because they didn't know the people, they never met them. And suddenly they've gone from being just, just normally going about their day, watching EastEnders or whatever it is on the TV, knock at the door and, and they're tens of thousands, sometimes millions of pounds richer because they've inherited an estate from an unknown relative. And I just felt, as I was reading Ephesians 1, that we have every spiritual blessing. We are given an inheritance from God. 
that we are walking around like the unknown beneficiaries, sitting on a fortune in the heavenlies, and we never, never know about it. And if we do know about it, we don't think it's us. We don't think we're eligible for it. We think it's for somebody else. And I want to tell you, church, being in the family of God is far more than just a name badge, far more than just a box you tick on a census form. Being a Christian, being a Jesus follower means that you have Jesus' legacy. You see, one person's legacy is another person's inheritance. And just like those people on Air Hunters who were baffled and bowled over by this amazing inheritance that they had received, church, you were sitting as a Jesus follower on every spiritual blessing. And we know this in theory, but we need to start believing this as reality because it isn't just something that makes us feel nice and warm and fuzzy. It's something that should affect and change our lives forever. As I said, as Jesus was sat there in his prayer time talking with God, I believe it wasn't just devotion. I believe he was crafting a plan. Ephesians calls it a mysterious plan. Now, I think God was there talking to to, to Jesus about this master plan and dotting the I's and crossing the T's because I believe as Jesus sat there in his devotional time, he was writing and drafting a clad iron will. He was making sure that when his blood was shed, which he knew was coming, that the legacy that he carried as the son of God would be released and unleashed on the people of God. And more than that, he didn't just have a will, he had a life insurance policy. And this life insurance policy was so good, apparently the son of God can get really good rates Because when he died, you see, every debt that you and I wrapped up as children of God, as son and daughters, as the bride of Christ, was written off in an instant, in a second. And not only that, I said the rates were good. Every future loan, every future debt, every future thing that will try and pull you out of the purpose and plan of God, written off as well. Bible tells us that our sin has been removed as far as the east from the west that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. They didn't come to just judge the world, he came to save it. And we are sat there, church, sometimes looking into the great unknown, thinking, oh, my day is so bad, I don't know what to do. And God is saying, guys, I've given you every spiritual blessing. Pray in faith. Talk in prophecy. Walk in the favour, just like that song declared, walk in the favour and the miracles that I have put in your life. And when I say church, I know I'm getting passionate, I'm getting excited because I believe this needs to change something in our lives. I was convicted reading it because I don't live like I'm a beneficiary of the King of Kings. I often live like a pauper in the spiritual. And before you worry and think I'm preaching some sort of claim it and name it gospel, I'm not. I'm not talking about Jesus giving a monetary gift or a Ferrari. I know some of you are secretly praying for that when you hear about your inheritance. I'm not talking about a bigger house or a better car loan deal or a bigger max on your credit card. When we're talking about every spiritual blessing, we're talking about things like this, being sons and daughters and the rights that come with that, being forgiven, redeemed and renewed and a peace that passes all understanding. The ability to look beyond the temporal things, the ability to get past our disability on earth and look at what God is calling us to, the ability to operate in spiritual gifts, prophecy and speaking in tongues and words of affirmation and kindness and generosity to be holy, pure and truthful in the face of pressure and opposition. I love this. Jesus told us, this is a challenge to his church, we will do greater things than him. Wow. Have you ever read what Jesus did? Greater things than him. And of course, eventually to defeat death, the final enemy, and to reign with him in eternity. Church, this is our legacy. This is the inheritance. This is the identity that Jesus bestows upon us as sons and daughters of God.
So why are we not seeing it? Why are we walking into our days feeling glum and depressed and down and worried and stressed and oppressed and perplexed and abandoned and distraught? Why are we walking and feeling like this? I think it's because we have eligibility issues. I practice these words all week. I still can't say it. Eligibility issues. Let's go back and learn some more from air hunters. You know, oftentimes when these air hunters would come to the door and they talk to this this family about this amazing inheritance that they've just, uh, you know, been landed with just in their bank account out of nowhere. They'd often pan back to the couple a few weeks after that first initial meeting. And sometimes, I think probably maybe half of the time, they'd be sat in an armchair, be talking about this legacy and this inheritance. And it was really, really interesting to watch that about half of the people felt so guilty about claiming the inheritance. They felt ashamed because they never knew the person who was giving them the inheritance. They think they should have done more, that they should have earned it. And they didn't have to do anything and suddenly they've got all this monetary gift. So why didn't they deserve it? And why do we think we don't deserve it when we're told these amazing things, that we'll do greater things than Jesus, that we're son and daughters and heirs and a royal priesthood? We know it in theory, but as I say, it's very, very rarely an experienced reality. Why? I think, church, just like the air hunter people, some of us think we don't deserve it, whether consciously or subconsciously. And this is something I'll preach about time and time again. Probably you'll get sick of it because this is something that I've experienced. The favour that God has bestowed on my life and some of my journey, which I'm sure you'll hear about over the months and years to come, that I've just felt the favour of God on my life and never felt that I've deserved it. Why don't I feel this? Because we're told the word of God tells us you deserve it. You don't have to earn it. It's a, it's a gift freely given. It's because God chose us. And that in his eyes, we are faultless. In his eyes, we are fruitful. Why don't I believe it? Well, I think, church, the simple answer is because we're conditioned to think that we have to earn everything we get. Our society, our culture, the Western world conditions us from the moment we can understand that everything good we are going to get, we have to earn. And I catch myself doing this in my house with my little girl at the minute, who's two. I applaud her and I give her treats when she does something I want her to do. And I shout and I say no when she does something I don't want her to do. Of course, I love her and she's always my daughter, but I'm affirming that when you do things right, you get rewarded. And I remember in my first, um, first exams in school, it would have been year two, so I would have been six years old, the same age as my second son at the moment. And when I was younger, I don't know if this still happens in school, but we would have sats in year two and then year six. And it's really interesting because as I thought back to my exams and thinking about earning, at every exam I've ever taken, right from the age of six, I was told by my teachers it was Miss Holland in year two and Mr. Mandarin year six and then Mr. Gilbert in year 10, my GCSEs. Every exam that I ever sat down to took, I was told by my teacher, this is the most important exam you will ever take. These are the most important exams you will ever sit, so don't mess it up. We wonder why our young people have got mental health problems. This is the most important thing that you do. The result of this exam will determine how well you do in life. We're conditioned to think that if we do X well, then we will deserve Y. We see this time and time again, not just in school. It's not a knock at teachers or anything like that. We see it in the workplace. We get promoted when we do well. And of course, I can understand this. If we do well, good things happen. But because we're so conditioned and cultured to act this way, this always, I think, slips into our faith as well. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not me, I understand the concept of grace, I've never had this issue, then I'd ask you, when is the last time you were so desperate to get something from God that you promised him you would do X 
if God will give you why. I promise you, God, I will fast tomorrow if you just give me that really good car parking space at Tesco. I promise you, God, if I go into the doctor's office and the results are clear, that I'm going to go on mission to Japan or China. I promise you, God, if you do this, then I'll do that. I promise you, God, if you just give me that person to be my wife. Don't do that, church. But I promise you, God, if you just give me that person to be my wife, then I'll do this. I'll become a pastor. I'll become a missionary. We don't think we earn it. We don't think we deserve it. But time and time again, church, through scripture, God says it's not what you do that gets you what you've got. It's who you are. And again, same as the Aaron says, it's not what you've done, Joe and Jill. It's because of who you are. You're a third cousin, four times removed on the sister's side. But here's the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God. There's no line of succession with the heirs in the kingdom of God. We all have an equal inheritance. Funnily enough, I said my brother's a solicitor and I was talking to him this week on FaceTime in the office. I'm sure some of the staff thought I was having a bit of a doss. But I FaceTimed my brother up who's a solicitor and deals in probate and I was trying to get this illustration correct. So I say, right, Chris, tell me, how does probate work? And he says, well, actually, I'm doing that same thing right at the moment for a family who's uh, got an inheritance of £2 million. She had no direct descendants, no husband, husband had passed away. And he said, just in Birmingham, we've found 150 third cousins and all of them are entitled to a share of this £2 million equally. Probably doesn't sound like a lot, there's 150 people. He said, each of these 150 cousins are going to get £13,300. Doesn't matter who they are, how old they are, all of them get an equal share. That is exactly the same church as us. All of us get an equal share in this amazing inheritance that God bestows upon us. Why? Not because of what you've done. You can clap, you can clap. Not because of what you've done, but because of who you are. So we have this eligibility issue. When we look at these things, we think, well, I'm only a level one Christian. I need to be like Shirley Connor, or I need to be like Liz Green, or I need to be like, well, maybe not Ian Lewis. I need to be like Lars. And then I'll be able to get to the next level and earn that next level of blessing. And then I'll be able to get to level four and five. And then maybe I'll become a life group leader and then maybe an elder. Maybe one day I'll even be a pastor and I'll get the best spiritual blessing. Absolute rubbish. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. The same blessing inheritance that any elder, any pastor gets is exactly the same as a person who's just come to faith five seconds ago. Why? Because you're a son and daughter as much as they. Never fall for the trick of buying a pastor's prayer rag or holy water because the pastor, rubbish. The same spirit that lives in me is the same spirit that lives in you. And the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave is the same spirit that lives in you. You're all edible. We are all edible as sons and daughters of God. We need to get excited about it, church. We need to understand that. Speak it and praise about it and enjoy it. But I think there's also another reason that comes to our eligibility, though we need to be really careful. And I know in our 21st century world, it's not a cool thing to talk about the spiritual and the spiritual realm, but I believe, church, it is absolutely real and it is poignant and we need to pay attention to what is happening in the sphere we don't see. I believe the spiritual sphere is more real than the physical sphere. And I believe there's a reason that in the same letter we've read a passage from this morning to the church in Ephesus, that Paul goes on to tell them to put on spiritual armour. There's a reason we're told to put on spiritual armour. Why? Because he knows that they, and therefore us, will be attacked. We have a very real and a very dangerous enemy. Now don't misunderstand me, he's completely defeated. 
And we live in between that tension of, of sort of D-Day and VE Day, okay? The, the, the battle's being won, but the, 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 the mop-up is happening. And this is that tension in the church age. We're living in this, in this mop-up age. But don't let anyone tell you that the spiritual doesn't exist or the devil doesn't exist or his demons don't exist because they absolutely do. I came across a quote this week from Pastor William Ramsey from 1856 and it says this. One of the most striking proofs of the personal existence of Satan is found in the fact that he has influenced the minds of multitudes in reference to his existence and doings, making them believe that he does not exist and that the hosts of demons or evil spirits over whom Satan resides as prince are only the fantasies of the brain, some hallucination of the mind. Could we have a stronger proof of the existence of a mind so mighty as to produce such results? I believe this quote that is like a hundred and... 56 or whatever it is years old is as true then as true today as it was then I absolutely believe there's an enemy that is out to get us and I don't believe that Satan is omniscient or omnipresent he's not everywhere all at once so probably he's not going to deal with you directly but there is this whole host of spirits we see in the gospel Jesus confronting these spirits time and time again who are out to oppress and demonize and upset the plans and purposes of God in humanity And this was what the plan was against, this will we were talking about. You see, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, the enemy thought he had won. He thought that was it, his blood has been shed, but he didn't realise that the will that Jesus had put in place had been executed at that very moment. We see this in the evidence of the curtain being torn from top to bottom in the temple and the presence of God unleashing on the face of the earth. And the enemy was upset and he was destroyed and he was tormented in that moment. So what he wants to do now is antagonise and agonise the people of God. And I believe one of the chief weapons that the enemy uses isn't possession, isn't poltergeist, anything like that. I believe most normally the chief and primary weapon the enemy uses is identity theft. And I don't mean that as we would understand identity theft. He doesn't go and, and nick the credit card of James, okay? What I mean is he tries to mess up and change and distort our identity in Christ by telling us that we don't have an inheritance, that we're not chosen, that we're not sons of daughters, that we're not eligible. And I love this verse that Jesus talking in John 8, 44. This is the biggest discourse in the whole of the Gospels where Jesus talks about the theology of the enemy. And he says this, when he lies speaking about Satan, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now in this, the biggest discourse about the enemy in the Gospels, he doesn't talk about possession. He doesn't talk about poltergeist activity. He doesn't talk about night terrors or dreams or nightmares. He talks about lies. I believe absolutely there's all sorts of weird and wacky things that happen in the spiritual I believe the Gospels aren't just history. I believe they're a case study of what still happens today. But primarily, the enemy's weapon is lies. He will tell you every mistruth. He will misapply truth. We see this with the scripture. The enemy knows the Bible. Even to Jesus, he's tried to misapply the truth of the word of God into his life. He wants to twist and distort. In 2 Corinthians, I think it's 11 verse 14, the Bible tells us, Paul talking to the church in Corinth, that Satan masquerades as an angel of lies, uh, an angel of light. And I believe his minions, his demons, the evil spirits that follow him, which there are plenty, do exactly the same thing. They take a truth and distort it just enough to change its trajectory of what it means. And church, as we're walking through our lives and walking through our days, know this one thing. 
Satan will never call you by your name. He'll never call you by your first name, by your identity. Why? Because it's an affirmation of your identity. What Satan will call you is what you feel or what you've done. He will call you depressed. He will call you an addict. He will call you unforgiven. He will call you a divorcee. He knows some of the innermost things that we feel because he watches us. He knows exactly what we struggle with and he pushes into that. He will never call you by your name. See, God calls you by your name. He disregards all the things we've been, all the things we were, all the things we feel. Satan will tell us we are those things. That's not us. You see, our name is our family name, our shared identity. It is children of the Most High God. Again, last thing, getting wisdom from air hunters. Before the funds were released, the legacy, the inheritance, there was one formality that had to happen. As they stood on the doorstep, they were invited in for teas and coffees. The probate researchers will sit down and say, tell us about your family and we will need to see your ID. We need to see your identity. We want to validify that who you say you are, you actually are, that you deserve this. Show us your ID. Have you got ID? And again, as I was thinking about identity, another funny story came to my mind. It was my first anniversary. And um, Becky and I had children rather quickly. Three months in, we, had, we were pregnant with our first little boy, Judah, who's next door at the moment. So that meant that between a week, the 29th we were married, the 22nd Judah was born. There was this week where there's a birthday and there's an anniversary. And on our first anniversary, it was quite a rough birth. Becky was in hospital and I wanted to do something really, really special for her for our first anniversary. Don't think I've done anything special since, but that first one was really good. Okay. I'm joking. So she'd been going on for a while about this new watch she wanted, a Michael Kors watch. She just loved the design of them. She didn't have a particular favourite, but she'd drop these hints. And I just pretended like I wasn't listening. And most of the time that's not hard to do, but I was making real effort to pretend like I wasn't listening. And, and while she was in hospital, I was scouring these websites, Michael Jones Jewelers in Northampton, looking at their website and looking for the perfect watch. And I finally found it. Paid for it online the night before, got my ID ready in my pocket, packed it because I was going to the hospital to spend the day with Becky it was the day she was coming out and uh, got caught up at the hospital as you always do sort of you know having to sign out and, and get all your stuff out and so I just said I've got to pop out time was ticking on it was quarter to five shop was shutting at five and I ran to Michael Jones Jewelers right on the high street in Northampton and I puff in and there's this older lady at the desk she's got her big glasses on and she went oh can I help you and I said yes I've, uh, I've got to get this watch. Please don't shut the shop before I get this watch because my wife's in hospital. She's coming out. It's our anniversary and I want to bless her. She was so excited about that. She said, no problem. All I need is your order number and your ID. No problem. Reel off the order number and then give her the ID. And she sort of stopped a moment and I said, is there a problem? She went, well, yeah, your ID doesn't look like you. I said, what do you mean my ID doesn't look like me? That's my, that's my driving licence. That, that's me. And she said, well, your address is also a Birmingham address. Like the name's right, but... I can't work out if this is you I need to get a colleague now I'm sweating because I think well I'm going to get kicked out of this shop because I've bought the wrong ID and I took the ID back off her and I looked at it and I didn't see a problem and then I looked at it a bit more you see the ID that I had was my first driver's licence I had since I was 17 okay I was 24 at the time and I made some fashion mistakes I think in my later teen years let me show you the ID uh, that I handed this lady 
So I was a hairdresser at the time and she actually, no word of a lie, she actually said this. She said, if you said your name was Edward Scissorhands, I'd believe you. And she went, let me just get a colleague. She went, the address is the Birmingham address. The name's right, but the picture's not right. We, 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 we can't really do this, you know, feeling okay about it. It doesn't look correct. And then eventually I had to sort of prove through my Facebook profile I was who I was. Literally had to go back through old pictures and say, look, this is where I got my hair cut. This is where I lost a bit of weight. This is where I got better looking. This is where my fashion choices were much better. And eventually she gave me what I had paid for. Whole load of stress and kerfuffle. I'm sweating because I'm a panicker by nature anyway. Desperate to get back to Becky. You see, what I should have bought is this. It's my passport. This was done the year before. Much better looking, hey? Much better haircut. But why didn't I do that? You see, this identity is far more precious than my driving licence. I can replace my driving licence with £17 and trust me, I've lost a few. Those who know me know I'm useless at losing keys and cards and wallets. So my passport only ever comes out when I'm going on holiday or when I need it for a certain something. Why? Because this identity is precious. You see, what Satan will do, he will tell us that the new identity we've been given is too precious for us to walk in. That's got to stay at home. That's got to stay back. That's, that, that can't be what you're called to. Your identity is this. It's who you were. It's what you did. It's, it's an addict. You're, you're unforgiven. You're, you've got foul language. You're, you're a sinner. You're dirty. No, Jesus says you were called to walk in this identity. This is now your name. This is what you look like. You're defined by who I say you are and not who anybody else says you are, whether it's a parent, a teacher, the enemy. But church, really, really start reminder. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. It doesn't matter if you know all the lyrics to the songs that we sing. It doesn't matter if you can quote scripture, chapter and verse. If you're not walking in the identity that Jesus Christ has bestowed upon you, it's absolutely worthless. He is saying the doors are wide open. The spiritual bank account that has your name on it is ready for collection. Take it. No, 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 I can't, it's too precious for me. I don't deserve rubbish absolutely rubbish and I think Jesus writing that will and that life insurance policy he knew we would get into trouble because we always end up getting into trouble so what did he do look at this in the the verses we were reading just a couple of verses after when you believed in Christ he identified you as his own by giving you the spirit I love this the spirit is God's guarantee he's our guarantor that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people The Holy Spirit is literally your guarantee that Jesus is who He said He is and He's going to do what He's going to do. And when the Holy Spirit comes, He will fill you. He will crush the lies of the enemy. Look at this, Jesus again talking to His disciples. When He, that's the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. How do we counteract the father of lies? With the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit will guide us. He will pull us. He will navigate us out of the mire, out of the stickiness, out of the messes, out of the unforgiveness, out of the addictions, out of the labels that are put on us into all truth. We need to get excited about this and believe this church because it makes a difference in our lives. And what we could do now, we could go into a really melancholic time of praying and Louise will play some beautiful chords that will you know, really get us in the fields. But we're not going to do that. What we're going to do, we're going to stand to our feet we're going to get our worship team up and we're going to declare some truth. So we've had a little bit of a warm-up of saying we know who we are. Let's not just sing it now as empty rhetoric. Let's declare it and believe that actually what we're singing is truth. 
And I believe the Holy Spirit that resides within us who will call ourselves followers of Jesus today will jump with excitement as we begin to understand what Jesus has done for us and what He's released through us, through His Son. So are we okay to stand up if you're able? And as I said, it's not a sin to move your hips in church. You can dance, you can shout, you can put your hands up. And if you're at home, don't miss out on this moment. Stand up, get involved, and then Becky's going to come and pray a blessing over us as we close. Thank you, team.